0: I think some of you might be wondering, especially if you're new here, who is this chick? Why is she doing these? Well, today I'm going to tell you just that. I'm going to tell you my full story, something I've never done before. I'm Natasha, and this is episode two of She Read It Herself. Hi 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 i am so happy that you're back here today i genuinely mean that um it is just a blessing and my genuine hope is that you find this nugget of time whether you are driving in the car to school pickup you're fixing dinner or you just are so generously sharing with me that bit of quiet time you have I'm really glad you're here. I'm really grateful. And we're going to do something a little different today. Um, We're just going to take a quick pause on where we left off from episode one, which was right at the end, um, right at the beginning, rather, of the book of John. We left off on John 1, verse 3, and we're going to pick right back up there next episode. And it's good stuff. It's all about the light and the darkness, but I thought it might be smart to spend one episode here at the beginning of all these podcasts to tell you who I am. Who is this girl that you're hearing? Why should you listen to her (laughs) when she talks about all of the the hard times that she's survived? What exactly is she talking about? So today, I'm going to tell you all that. I've shared bits and pieces here and there, whether you've heard of me Um, Through the interviews I did with Sarah Frazier during our last episodes, we did with Riley, and you're from the whole Kane Show world. You've heard some of the bad stuff towards the end, but I've never actually told you guys all of it. And I think that having the full picture, I hope that rather, I hope that by having the full picture, you're going to find a point that you're able to relate to. Um, And maybe you'll feel that less alone. Maybe seeing somebody else who's on the other side of it will help you get through today. So let me paint a picture for you. I grew up in a Cuban-Venezuelan family, although it was mostly the Cuban side of the family, my mom's side, uh, or grandmother's side, maternal side, that raised me. My mother was a single mom. She had me very young, like 19, 20 years old, but woman was a superhero. Like she, I never felt like I wanted for anything. She worked her butt off. She finished college. She worked full time to support me. And I am, oh my gosh, probably one of the most grateful things I am from my childhood is that I got to grow up with my extended family. My great grandmother and great grandfather I lived with them. They they raised me during the days when my mom was at work, and we saw my grandmother every day. We all we grew up in this this Cuban neighborhood where everybody like your your theas and your your great great aunts and somebody that you called an and uncle like theo somebody that you didn't really know if they were your uncle. They were all in the neighborhood, and we would all walk, and the old ladies would play dominoes together. And the kids and the cousins would hang out and it was, it was wonderful. And you know the funny thing about childhoods? I always felt like I never wanted for anything, but looking back, some of my favorite memories are actually that we were pretty poor. Um, I, I remember my great-grandmother, my great-grandfather was a painter and she would take his extra paints to her sticks. And since we didn't have the money to buy me, like, American Girl doll furniture, she would make me furniture out of paint sticks. And I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. You know, I remember riding my bike around the neighborhood and my bike had flat tires and it was really hard to pedal, but I did it anyway. And I was just like, meh, whatever. I just don't get as far, but you make do. Um... I remember for entertainment, you know, I didn't go to swim lessons or these lessons or that. We had a big orange tree in our backyard and I used to climb it and get all scraped up and then pick the oranges and then I would just sit on the roof and let my imagination carry me away. Like those are the good memories that I have from those early years. It was a time of love. When I was a little older, um, I remember, oh, so probably when I was, I didn't know anything about my dad and I didn't really worry about it because, you know, I had a lot else going on. And when you're that little, you just deal with what's right in front of you. But the story goes that I met my dad when I was about three years old and my mom had not told him about me. She was very young. She just She wanted me all to herself, and he was, you know, a party boy. But when I got a few years old, she realized I probably did need a dad in my life. So she introduced me to him and his family. And apparently the story goes like my grandmother was about ready to write my mom off, that she was just, you know, going after him for child support or something, and he wasn't really my dad, and she says that as soon as she saw me, She knew that I was her granddaughter because I looked just like my dad. It's cute, right? But it's kind of a curse as I got older because I still, especially when I make these episodes, I see so much of him in my face. And my dad is now completely out of my life. And we'll get more into that as this episode goes along. But it's so funny. It's such a cute story and I see it as such a curse now. Anyway, so my dad was there. I met him, but then he left again. He lived in Atlanta and I would see him, I don't know, maybe once a year. So it was awkward, but luckily I had uncles, I had my great-grandfather, I had other male influences in my life. When I was around seven or eight, my dad came back. Apparently my dad found Jesus. That's what he told me, that He had this incredible transformative um, salvation story where, you know, just in in this great way, God showed himself to my dad and he fell on his knees and accepted Jesus as his savior. It sounds pretty great, right? My time with my dad was spent going to church. He would pick me up on Sundays and I would go to church with him on Sunday mornings, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, we would go. I would go to youth group. And it was so my relationship with my dad was 100% about God and the church. And it started off as a good thing, I think. But you'll see as we go through time, it is where probably the most pivotal reason that I left the church for so many years is because it was all enwrapped in this relationship I had with my father. So as I got older and it turned into these preteen teen years, is when I had this one life where my mom had remarried. I had this great stepdad, siblings that I had always been dying to have growing up. An only child is a little lonely, um, and that that all was great. And then I had this life with my dad and the church, and it all started to change during those teen years. And I'm sure some of that was me becoming a teenage girl, which, you know, we're kind of crazy at that age. And I am definitely living that full circle as I'm raising two teenage girls now. But it was more, it's so hard to describe, but my relationship with a dad who was, everything was about God. Everything was about the church. Everything was you know, I would start to pick up on things. I remember we would go on these road trips. And I remember once my stepmom really wanted to go to, I think it was Cracker Barrel. And my dad didn't want to go to Cracker Barrel. And I remember in the car, him telling her, we're not going to your restaurant because God made me the head of this household and you have to submit to me. And I was in the back seat, and I, I, I thought, ew, ew, that doesn't feel right. i I don't like that. And I, as I got older, there were more and more of these instances. Whenever my dad had to tell me no about something, whether it was something I wanted to do, or I remember it was music I would want to listen to, or he had to discipline me, which let me, not to brag, but I was a really good teenager. I never got in trouble. No drinking, no drugs, no boys. I was a very good girl. But when like he did see fit to discipline me, it was always that God told him to. It wasn't him or the explanation between why he felt the need to do these things. It was God told him and he was just doing what God told him to do. And it was hard for him, but he had to follow God's word. So maybe you can see how that kind of messes with your mind as a kid. And at the same time, this church that I had loved was growing and it was growing not just in numbers it was growing in donations and money and it was starting to attract the rich people of the Tampa Bay area and it's like it's good that for your church to grow and it's great to have money if you're using it for the right purposes and I started noticing things that it it seemed like it was more about the glamour. It was more about the flat screen TVs. And the pastor started driving a really nice car and living in a really nice house. And it, there wasn't this focus on like the neighborhood I grew up in. You know, we could have used some help from a church, especially a big church like this. And it was a lot more also fire and brimstone. I started hearing a lot more messages about Gay people are going to hell. You believe in another religion, you're burning in hell forever. And I was a really empathetic kid, you know, a compassionate kid. And it didn't sit right with me. So you've got all this together. You've got the church changing, at least in my eyes. Maybe they were always like that. But as I grew up and started getting a mind of my own, I started noticing it more. And my relationship with my father also kind of dissolving because everything that bad that happened with him was because God told him. So this these were my teenage years. When you get to, let's see, I remember I was getting ready to go to college. This is a great example of how it was falling apart. And I had a scholarship. I had one of these bright future scholarships where 75% of my in-state tuition was going to be covered. And I really, really wanted to get out of Tampa. I wanted to go to Florida State, which is actually where my dad went. And I remember at first he was all supportive and like, yeah, this is great. But then when it came time to paying to help me go to college, just that 25%, my dad said he prayed on it. And God told him no, that that was a waste of money. To send me to an um, not even out of state school, just an out of city school, when I could save money and live at home. At the same time, this was happening, my dad and stepmom were building their million dollar dream house on a lake. So it really rubbed me the right, not the right way. It really rubbed me the wrong way. But I stuck with it. You know, I made the best of it. I went to University of South Florida. And this time I started, I started growing for the first time in my life. I was in a bubble. I went to a private Christian school that my mom worked very hard to send me to and all of my time with my dad in church to this big university and all of these different people. And, you know, I didn't really want them to burn in hell. They seemed kind of cool, even though I guess they were, they were the bad people, the bad influences, so I'm growing, my mind is growing, and I'm starting to have to make decisions for myself. I join a sorority, which, you know, if you were ever in a sorority, that and the teachings of the church do not necessarily go hand in hand. You start to wonder about, is premarital sex really that bad? And I kind of want to drink and party. Like, I want to experiment. I want to learn all these things. So I started I started pulling away from the time with the church and my christian friends and immersing myself with curiosity more into this secular world that i previously had no experience with and you know it was it was a great time in my life but um i don't think my dad necessarily approved i don't remember him just telling like me like outright you know I disown you or what you're doing is wrong, but there were just, there were just times when I needed him and he refused to be there for me and I couldn't understand it. There wasn't, it didn't feel like there was space for unconditional love or, you know, my mom, she didn't agree with every decision I was making, but she was still always there for me. I knew I could always come to her for help or just talk to her about my life without severe judgment and condemnation. And I could tell you a bunch of stories of, of instances that happened, but they always ended with confusion. I don't understand you. All I've wanted is some sort of fatherly relationship with you. You know, growing up, even though I had I had a stepfather who loved me, I had um, my uncle that helped raise me, I had my great-grandfather, I had all these men, nothing fills the void for a little girl of not having their father. I remember I used to babysit. This is such a pitiful story, but I'm going to tell you anyway, just because if you didn't grow up with a good father figure, maybe you can relate to the way it affects you, I would babysit for the pastors so they could go out there with their wives and I would take care of the kids. And I, gosh, this is so pathetic. I remember when I heard them coming in, I would turn off the TV and I would pretend to be asleep on the couch. And I would do this because I had this image in my head that I always wanted of a dad coming in to tuck me in at night to like, you know, gently like wake you or pull a blanket up. And somehow in my head, I thought at least having these men and my pastors, I thought of as, you know, it was like my youth pastor and my youth choir pastor. I thought of them. I saw the relationship they had with their kids and they were good, loving fathers. And it wasn't what I was getting from mine. So I would pretend to be a fall asleep so they could come in and gently rub my shoulder and wake me up. And I could get a little taste of what it was like to have a father be there when you're asleep. That's how much I was missing. Didn't realize it until I was older. That's why I did that. And looking back, it probably made them wonder about my babysitting skills. That I could be asleep and fall, as- stay asleep through them, you know, coming in the door, saying hello and turning on the lights. It was a little messed up, but you know what? When you're a young girl and a teenage girl, and my gosh, this is my fear with mine who now don't have a father figure, it comes out in messed up ways that that you don't predict or understand. But enough on that. So my relationship with my dad starts to become obsolete. We talk on holidays. We see each other a few times during the year. I would go over their house to visit with my half-sister who I, I dearly loved and my stepmother who had always been good to me. You know, I would go over there and we'd have we'd have dinner cooking out of the back of their lake house and it would be nice and then I'd leave. I also really left the church at this time too because I was loving my secular life. I wanted to figure things out for myself. The bad part about being raised in a bubble is eventually your child's bubble will burst and they're going to want to know what's out there. And if you haven't prepared them, they're going to go figure it out for themselves and that's exactly what I did. I had the college life. I lost my virginity when I was 19. I would go to parties and drink. I would experiment and it was, you know, it is what it is. But at that same time, as I was starting to date men, I can now see in hindsight how that need for a father figure continued to show itself in unhealthy ways every relationship that I got into, it wasn't, it wasn't ever with the premise of let's just date and get to know each other. This will be fun and we'll see. Every single man was, is this the one that's going to be my husband? Is this the one that is going to be, is this going to be the one to finally give me the family I've been waiting for? The husband, the wife, and the kids. The nuclear family." That I had always been yearning for. That's how I went into every relationship. Not knowing it at the time, but I see it now. I remember I first met Peter, who would go on to be the love of my life and the father of my children. And also one of the most unhealthy experiences of my life. Um, I met him when I was 19. And he was um, working at the local radio station. I actually went in to meet another DJ. And when I was walking past the studios, he saw me, waved me over. And um, man, he was a charmer. You know, he may not have been the most um, handsome man you've ever seen. But if he got to talking to you, prettiest girl in the world would fall for those charms. He was funny and sweet and just had this magnetic personality that you just wanted to be around. Peter and I would go on to break up, get back together, break up, get back together. It was not, was not exactly the healthiest foundation for a long-term relationship, but we were young and it is, it is what it was. I remember during one of these breakups, Peter actually left. He, um, He actually moved up here to D.C. to work for Sirius XM. And I actually got an internship at the radio station that he had worked at before to FLZ in Tampa. And Riley and I talked about on our interview together over on my other podcast um, about how great those days were. It was, oh, it was such a great time in my life just to be young and free and there was nowhere else I wanted to be other than at that radio station. Just to be there was awesome. Eventually Peter moved back down to Tampa to start the Kane show down there and that was the last time that we got back together. We stayed together. He would propose and um, eventually I left that life in Tampa um, because he got offered mornings up here in DC. So we packed up and moved up here together to start our life. I remember that first year being very hard. It was my first time being away from home. But soon after our wedding, I mean, I think a year into our marriage, I was pregnant with Sam. And Oh my gosh, that time to actually be pregnant with my first child, to have my husband, to have this dream life where, my goodness, my husband is a radio celebrity and we're having our first baby and we just had the beautiful wedding. It was everything this girl had been dreaming about and more. But I guess that's also the beginning of when real life caught up. And I think it was the first time I realized that this dream life that I had been waiting for was not something that really happens in reality. After I had Sam, um, I remember I had postpartum depression. Uh, It first started off a, a few months, actually, into her life. It sounds so silly, but I really mourned the birth story, I had built up in my head this experience of being in labor, having my partner by my side, and and having a natural birth. And I ended up having a c-section. And my brain really mourned that. And combine that with, I guess, the the hormone, however the hormones mess up that gives you postpartum depression, the chemicals changing in your brain. And for the first time in my life, I had always been this outgoing, bubbly person. I was depressed. And it sucked. It was beyond sucking. It, it actually got scary. It was really confusing. And it was really lonely because I didn't understand what was happening to me. Even though I had this beautiful baby girl in my arms that I loved more than life itself. I was so sad. So after (laughs) my therapist really beating me down that medications were okay, that it is okay to treat what's going on, I went on, I think it was Prozac, and it was like a miracle. I remember after a month on the other side of it, sitting down and telling her, why did I fight this so hard? She was like, meh, everybody does. So I was on that for I think only like six months and the postpartum depression went away and I could go back to trying to live this charmed life. And I don't want to make it sound like everything was bad because during that time, you know, two years later in 2010, I had Sophie. And during that time when they were both toddlers and the show was growing and that made Peter happy... It was good years. We did have some really good years together when it was love. There were cracks that were starting. You know, cracks that his his mental illness was starting to become really apparent in our lives. Um, Bits of the narcissism started to show up. But there was more good than bad. There was still more good than bad. So if you fast forward over the next six years, when Sam was six and Sophie was four was when it finally became too much. The bad outweighed the good to a scary amount. You know, at that point, we were millionaires. We had an obscene amount of money coming in. The show had been number one, you know, every city it was put on. It was like Number one, everything that Cain did turned to gold. And you know, now that he's gone, I spend, have spent a lot of time looking back, trying to really think about when did he change? When did it go wrong? And I think it was just the perfect storm. You know, he very publicly was diagnosed with um, moderate obsessive compulsive disorder he was diagnosed as having ADHD, and although he didn't talk about this part on the air, he was diagnosed with depression as well. And unfortunately, he met the psychiatrist that would later be the one that killed him, one that gave him all the feel-good drugs while that, without treating the, um, the underlying condition. So as Peter became addicted to those, and his mental illness was basically going untreated, he he started to turn into somebody that I didn't recognize. And then you combine that with the stardom and the obscene amounts of money and all these people in your ear telling you that you're amazing, you're you're so important, you're number one, you know, all the yes people because he was making them money as well. And the narcissism started becoming a lot more predominant. So you combine somebody who's got these mental illnesses, crippling anxiety and OCD, and um and the home life gets pretty ugly pretty fast. I want to take my responsibility during this time. I started to not being able to cope with the emotional abuse I was experiencing at home. The gaslighting, it makes you crazy, ladies. The walking on eggshells not wanting to upset him because maybe if you can do everything right, he'll show you some love because that's the way it works, right? You believe the gaslighting that you're the problem. You structure everybody in the house to meet that one person's needs because then they give you a little, you know? After it's usually after they break you down worse than they've done before, then they love bomb you all over again. So it's a constant cycle. And instead of getting my own therapy, I guess instead of I don't know reaching out to others to and telling them what was going on at home, I chose to self medicate. Around this time, after Sophie was born, is when my um, autoimmune disease started to show up. It runs in the women in my family. It usually comes after hormonal changes like pregnancy. So I found myself in terrible physical pain every day. I would later also find out that every time I went through a pregnancy, a disc in my back would continue to slip further and further um, and press on my sciatic nerve, which would give me just this awful nerve pain down my back and into my feet. And this was during the time when oxycodone came onto the scene. And doctors were writing those feel-good drugs like, like it was freaking candy. So here I am with what started off as treating physical pain. I am now medicating every day, every night. Because if I can just numb the pain that I'm feeling from this relationship, this marriage that I'm in, then I can get through to the next day then I can keep putting on the facade. I can keep just doing the role. I can keep being Ms. Pink Monster, the one who makes these crafts and posts these cute videos of her perfect little pink world with her two princess daughters and her superstar husband. I can keep doing that one day more if I can just hold off this pain a little longer. So you combine where Peter was at in his life with where I was at in my life, and you get a marriage that cannot survive. At the very end his addiction became so bad. He was so cruel and paranoid too. The paranoia was awful when he was high that the cops were getting called to my house regularly and I remember after the second time that he called the cops in the middle of the night because he swore that his medications had been stolen. Um, he liked to stay awake on Ambien and Ambien can put you in some really messed up mindsets, but it scared the crap out of my girls having the police show up in the middle of the night to our house. And after the second time it happened, I gave Peter an ultimatum because there were times where he would, when he would really screw up, when he would really take it too far that he would recognize his addiction and he would... Promise me that he would get help. He would write me letters saying, you know, I, I take responsibility. I'm going to stop. I found this person who's going to help me. And you know, you know how it is. It would last for a week if I was lucky. The girls and I would come back and then it would all fall apart all over again. And after this, so after this last time of the police being called, I gave him an ultimatum. I said, you either get help Like, real, like, rehab help. And you get off of these drugs and the alcohol. (laughs) The Grand Marnier that was such, such a joke on the air was poisoning my life at home. You stop all these, or I'm leaving. Ladies, I don't know if you've ever given a narcissist an ultimatum. They don't typically work. The next morning was my birthday. So instead of this, you know, birthday surprise I thought I was going to get, that he was going to have his wake-up call just like he had had before and it was all going to be okay, was the answer to my question. Um, He left me a note that he was done. And I need to pack up my stuff and go because I was not going to tell him what to do. A narcissist will not let you leave on your terms. It has to be on theirs. It was a really crappy birthday. You know, I'm going to go over, this was probably 2014. 2014 to 2016 was one of the worst times of my life. There are two, and this was my first rock bottom. When you leave a narcissist and they no longer can control what you're doing, They will get back at you through the children. And that is exactly what happened. The attacks were relentless. They were daily. There was spying on me through cameras. He would have his coworkers um, stalk me and harass me. They would follow me home at night. Um, I would find out many years later that I was being tracked every move. I would wake up during the night hearing something outside and go outside to find a man in my driveway videotaping me. It was horrible. And, you know, there was also that (laughs) little incident where right after we separated, he decided to announce our separation on his nationally syndicated radio program, except in... Instead of telling, you know, like what celebrities do that we're breaking up, but we love each other. The children are our biggest priority. He went into a more than 20 minute sob story crying about how he had no clue and woke up one day to come, woke up one day in the morning to find the house was empty. The kids were gone. The dogs were gone. The safe had been emptied. His computers had been stolen and he was completely surprised by all this. And side note, just to give you the full picture, I didn't leave after he um, told me no um, to my ultimatum. I stayed in the house for weeks, and this announcement on the air came months after that, and he talked about how the kids have been gone for months, and ugh. Like, just a 100% made-up fabrication that painted me as this gold-digging, evil woman. And um, really, it just completely turned everybody against me. And was another tactic that narcissists do, which is to isolate you. Isolate you from your friends, your family. Change the perception of what everyone thinks of you to go along with their narrative. Except in my case, it was to hundreds of thousands of his listeners. Um, People went nuts. They destroyed me on message boards. I got death threats at my home. Messages saying that I should be dead. Honestly, there are no words to describe how much that destroyed me. And um, on top of that, one of the things that really killed me was the ways he would mess with me seeing my children, um, picking them up at school on days that weren't his if he was upset with the way I had acted. Um, The family court system was of no help to me. I mean, he did what he wanted, which led to one of the worst nights of my life, one of the times that I'm not going to get into, but if you Google my name, you probably read about the newspaper headlines, that was a night that I went to pick up my girls on what would be my night, and he decided no. I was five minutes late, and he said, you are not allowed to be late, and he wouldn't let me have them, and I don't know why, but something just snapped in me that night that I, that I wasn't going to let him get away with this anymore. The girls were expecting me, and um, I decided to show up anyway. That was one of, that was a really awful night. Spending that night in a hospital and then going home alone without my children. It just broke me. It broke what was left. And you know, during this time, um, I just fell apart it just felt like my world had ended and nothing I could do would work and I had no tools for how to deal with it so the self-medication really ramped up during this time. I just numbed myself with any of my prescriptions that I could. I don't really drink so alcohol wasn't my thing but the meds like the painkillers and I think I was also on Valium for anxiety at the time. The that was my numbing agent, and that's that's on me, guys. You know, nobody forced me to do anything. I had choices, and I I chose to numb, and in a really unhealthy way. Um, and I guess the the only unfair part was he still had his addictions, but with the money he had and the tracking he had, he was able to put all the focus on my addiction and make me the only unstable one you know during these years of 2014 to 2016 which was our separation um, I never stopped talking to God I would get on my knees and beg him to save me beg him to please take away this addiction to please take away this horrible pain this pain that the, the men's weren't making go away anymore That's the problem with self medicating, guys. It works for a while, but then no matter what the substance is, eventually it stops working. And you're stuck with now not only all that pain, but an addiction as well that will do anything to get fed. So I would get on my knees and beg for help. You know, I had the amazing support of my family during this time. They were in Tampa, I was in Maryland, so it was pretty lonely. And I remember going to my dad during this time. We had still, you know, we're seeing each other a couple times a year. We're talking on the phone. I remember I would talk to him when I would um, want God to help me and I would ask him to pray for me. And after we separated and I, you know, I didn't have any money. Yeah, I was a stay at home mom all these years and I had to get a lawyer because Peter hired this super intense lawyer. And I remember going to my dad because he he had a lot of money. And I remember going to him saying, Dad, can you please, please help me? I need help with a retainer for an attorney. And he knew Peter had already left. He knew the abuse that I had gone through. And I remember he told me no because God did not believe in divorce God didn't believe in me leaving my husband no matter how abusive it was and that was when everything ended with my dad eventually all of this um, all of this horrible time of my addiction being out of control Peter's addiction being out of control the... Obscene amount of harassment and stalking that was just making it unbearable to live the not seeing my children when he would decide I couldn't see them that night. It all just became unbearable. And when things are this bad eventually, it it gets to a breaking point. And the breaking point for us was when, um, we both filed emergency orders with the court. I filed mine asking for a restraining order. I had had one for a week. I wanted it to be extended. And he filed his uh, to take the girls away from me, for him to have sole custody because of my addiction. I remember the night before court, I um, my lawyers had prepped really well. You know, we had my doctor testifying for me. We had... You know my family. I had had eighty percent custody of the girls. I was their primary caretaker. I was their their everything, um, and I I was scared I was going to lose them. But on one hand, I I wanted to go to rehab. I wanted the addiction to be over. And his side had made an offer that if I go to rehab and I drop the um the criminal case against him, that if I gave him sole custody, it would only be temporary. But I knew Peter, and I knew if I let them go for even a day, if I gave him custody, I would never see those girls again. And it was, so it was the night before court. So I said no. And here we were the night before this trial. And I remember getting on my knees and doing something I had never done before. I gave up to God. Instead of praying, God, let me win. Let me get my way of what I see the plan needs to be. I gave up my will and I said, God, just protect my girls, even if it means protecting them from me. If this is what happens so I can finally be free of this unbearable pain, I give it to you. I said, just let your plan happen tomorrow, and I know I'll be okay. The next day, um, God's plan happened, and the judge ordered that if I did 30 days at an inpatient rehab, he would restore custody back to where it was, the 80-20 split, and all would be forgiven. That, you know, he was very on the fence about this, but he thought I was a great mother, and if I just did this, everything would be okay. I wish it could have been that simple. But at least one thing happened that needed to happen. I went and got the help I needed. And I could do a whole episode on what it's like to wake up in rehab as a stay-at-home mom. But, um, that was, uh, brutal. Brutal, but, but necessary. So for now, I'll just say it um, it saved my life. I was able to get off of all the medications and through the 12 steps and the meetings that would subsequently, that I w- would become a part of my life after the 30 days. I learned how to deal, how to work through the emotional pain without using something to make it go away. NAAA Whatever the twelve step program you choose. I joke sometimes that I feel like everybody should go through the twelve step program. Like it's it's really not about the addiction, but more about how you deal with your life, how you lead your life, how to work through pain. And during that sobriety journey, I just it I felt like I was reborn. I felt like a butterfly ride, oh my gosh, this is so cheesy. But I really did. I felt like a butterfly coming right out of that wet cocoon, like wings just starting to unroll, not quite ready to fly, but just a new beginning of a new me that I had never experienced before. There was a downside, though. Um, You know how the judge had promised I do the 30 days and then custody goes right back? I was right. It, It didn't happen. Peter's lawyers, um, they did every conniving loophole they could, bent every rule, and just kept pushing out the clock before we could get back before the judge. Because one thing in the family law system that people can do is they can try to establish a new norm. By the more time that went by that it was just him and the girls, before we could go back to court, he could say, look, your honor. They've been just with me and they're doing great, even though I now know they, they weren't doing great. It was awful for them, but um, that's what happened for way too long. On one hand, I can see how God maybe did that because if I had gone back to having them 80% of the time, I wouldn't have had the time by myself to grow as that butterfly to go through those 12 steps and really give myself the time, the time to truly implement change, lasting change. I like to think that's why. I don't want to make it sound like it was it was easy. It was, I mean, it was heartbreaking. Every time I thought that this would be over, this will be over by Halloween, we'll get back before the judge, Halloween would come and go without my children. Thanksgiving, Christmas. Oh my gosh, Christmas broke my freaking heart. But you just have to keep going. I learned how to keep going even when it feels unbearable. I learned tools to do that. I learned through experience how to understand the difference between what is in my control and what is out of my control. I could not control the court system. I could not control the people involved in our case that he was able to manipulate. Um, But I could control the work I was doing. I could control not completely falling apart. I could control just one step in front of the other over and over, sometimes one minute at a time. But eventually all those minutes add up and you actually make real progress and it it didn't come magically. It took a lot of work and unfortunately a lot of time. By the time I got to my one year anniversary of sobriety, it was also one year of not getting back before that stinking judge. And at this point I, I was out of money. I had Hundreds of thousands of dollars gone, sunk into legal fees. Um, I was in debt, and it just it couldn't keep going. So we settled finally on a custody arrangement. And you know, it wasn't it wasn't that eighty percent that I I thought I would get back to. That it was a different plan, and I just I didn't have a choice. That's where I learned acceptance. That this is where it was for now. At least I had them back. I think it was 30%, but it wasn't supervised. There weren't all these stipulations that it was under his control. It was a legal custody agreement where I wouldn't lose them. Or so I thought, but <laughs> that's a spoiler alert for a little later. On another note, around this same time is when I met my second husband, who would be the father of my amazing little boy, and um, also a good lesson in that there is still still growth that needs to be made. I guess we are always learning, and God was certainly about to teach me another lesson. And let me just preface this by saying, ladies, don't beat yourself up if you make another mistake. It's just part of the journey of growth, and I beat myself up about this one for a while, but um, well, here's why. I went through all this strength and all this self-discovery, but one wound that hadn't healed was the need for a man to fill the void that my father left in me. That one was still there. And let me tell you, I met a man who promised to do just that. The love bombing was intense. The It was the, you know, after two weeks I would marry you today if I could. You're so incredible. Your children are so incredible. I just want a family. I'm ready for a family. He was going to be perfect puzzle piece for what was still missing inside of me. I could still have the family that I dreamed of. But you know what I didn't do? I didn't take the time to stop and pray and be willing to give it over to God. As soon as that carrot dangled in front of me that I could finally have this, this man who was telling me all these things, the love that felt so good, I jumped. I never sat down before God and said, is this what you want for me? (laughs) All I thought about was, this is what I want for me. And, you know, I wonder if I had taken the time to have been in a place of prayer and one in God's plan instead of my own, if I had learned that lesson, um, would I have ended up in this relationship? But nevertheless, I did. We quickly had an engagement and right off the bat, I was pregnant with um, Harry. And I did continue to have the girls, but I also continued to have the struggles with um, Peter using the family court system to try and control my life, wreak havoc on my life, all of the above. I mean, his attorney was constantly threatening me that he was going to take sole custody. And um, because I got married, I had a baby. Uh, There was a fuss over Halloween one year. He didn't like my costume. So he was going to take me to court. I mean, ridiculous stuff, but also felt like a very real threat. But I had tools now for how to deal with him, and I had this beautiful new life with my baby and his sisters and husband, and that that little nugget of happiness lasted for around six months before um, it started to fall apart. I think that is yeah, that's how old Harry was when his dad first said that he had made a mistake, Um, he wasn't in love with me, and this wasn't what he wanted. I tried to blame it on, you know, all the problems that we were dealing with with the legal system with Peter, but it it was more than that. I found myself in the very familiar patterns of, of my marriage before. I mean, it was nowhere near as toxic, but it was it was a lot of the same. It was all about him. I would do anything to hang on to this man. And even if it meant that I sacrificed my own happiness or what I wanted, it was all about him. I would walk on eggshells not to upset him, um, offer to change my life in anything, in any way, any anything that would make him. And you guys... <laughs> I mean, this, if I went into everything that happened, this would be a 10 hour long podcast. Like maybe I just need to write a memoir because I haven't even gotten into that at the same time when Harry was a little older, like maybe 10 months old is when my best friend, my best friend, Megan of the last decade would betray me and would work with Peter to say that I, um. That I had relapsed. Um, In truth, it was six months after major back surgery. And I went through, I had to take pain medication, but I did it all through a program. And whatever, the reality didn't matter to her or him. I'll never understand why she did what she did. Now that I have all of Peter's devices, I've been able to read. All of the text messages she shared with my ex-husband, my best friend, who I told everything to, was reporting back to Peter. She was laughing with him at my expense. I don't think I'll ever get over the betrayal of Megan. Man, that could be a whole episode. It's honestly worse than all the men that hurt me, but in order for this not to be obscenely long, I'll just say that what she did worked. What she did along with Peter, um, again, without me knowing, tracking me, tracking my husband, and being able to pull together an incredibly false narrative, um, to convince a best interest attorney to take away my kids, if there's a whole interview I did with Sarah Fraser that gets into that whole story, but I mean, it was it was hell on earth. And again, I get into the details of how that happened that he could take my girls away again on the interview I did with Sarah Fraser, and maybe I'll do it again on here. But I can't believe I ever recovered from losing them again while my marriage was falling apart and to Harry's dad's credit he did stay because I would have had a really hard time getting the girls back and fighting this if Peter could say look even her husband left her so he did stay um, until I could go through that system and get the girls back again and that process took over a year over a year of being back to fighting tooth and nail for every visit, back to him canceling when he wanted. Like, it was so familiar. But this time it was different because this time I knew a lot more. I knew how to advocate for myself, how to fight for myself. There were limitations because it was during COVID, so it was hard to get in front of a judge, but. I just I just kept fighting I kept fighting for my marriage to stay together and I kept fighting to get my girls back and that brings us all the way to March of 2021 when um, I got the phone call from my beautiful daughters on FaceTime that daddy wasn't okay. You know, I had been fighting him and fighting him. I had been begging anybody to listen to me. There was a best interest attorney for the children. There was a parent coordinator. There were his attorneys, mine attorneys. I went to everyone and begged them, this man needs help. He is falling apart. The things the girls are reporting to me are not okay. When nobody wanted to listen? I don't but I don't know if it's so much that nobody wanted to listen as much as nobody wanted to go up against him. I even reached out to people that he worked with. I reached out to women because I thought they're other moms. Surely they'll they'll help me. Everybody was either too afraid of him or wanting to hold on to the money that he was making them, that they would not help me. And in March of 2021, I got the phone call from my girls that I will never forget. It was like seven in the morning and they called me on FaceTime that daddy was not okay. That he was shaking and... Could I please come over? Because they were so scared. I'm going to try to do this without breaking down because this part of the story I've told before and I sobbed my way through it and it was not pretty or um, intelligible. So I called 911 on the way over there. I got there as the paramedics got there. The last time I talked to Peter, he was sitting in a chair. And it's like he was there, but he wasn't there. Like his eyes were just looking. They were looking at me, but you could tell he wasn't seeing me. And I asked him if he was okay. And he couldn't answer me. We thought at that point it was probably a seizure. We didn't know what was going on. But it seemed like hopefully he'd be okay, you know. This was the man that I could never like get a win with. Like, he doesn't lose. He's gonna be perfectly fine. And um as he went off to the hospital, this was my first chance to be in that house. This was my first chance to see what was going on. And something like Mama Bear just took over me. And I was like, This ends now nobody will listen to me but now I know something is going on in this house and I will not let my daughter stay in here one day more and I remember the nanny trying to like physically push me back and I just pushed through her to look around the house and to find what was going on after I uncovered I think the second giant bottle of Grand Marnier that was hidden in um The dirty clothes hamper that the kids shared with him, she backed off and said she had no idea. We also needed to find the prescriptions to tell the hospital that he was on, so she and I went through that entire house. We found around eight different controlled substances prescribed all by that same psychiatrist that I told you about. Nine years later, And he was still writing eight different dangerous prescriptions, prescriptions that said on them, the ketamine said, do not use if you are a moderate to serious drinker, catastrophic side effects. Do you think he ever looked into his alcoholism or even asked him? I can tell you without a doubt that he knew because I had told him when we were still together. Anyway, that's a whole nother tangent I could go down, but we went on to end up finding, uh, I think it was 23, 23 or 25 bottles of Grand Marnier hidden. I mean, under beds, in his office, behind books, just Everywhere. And, you know, I was, I prepared myself at that point. I left with the girls and their dog Skittles. And I really believed at that point that he was going to finally get the help he needed. But that it was, I was preparing myself for for war, you guys. It's like, he's going to come out of this swinging stronger than ever. And yes, I have all this now, but I'll be darned. (laughs) It's really hard not to curse on here. But no matter what, he was going to be back and he was going to be swinging and I was not going to let it happen again. This was going to be the tipping point where everything changed. And sadly, it was. Just not in the way I expected. He never left the hospital. He had had, um... I'm not a doctor, so forgive me for screwing this up, but he had had a seizure due to um, the cirrhosis in his liver was causing his kidneys to, like, back up this chemical that can give you seizures and delusions when it builds up in your brain. You know, he was severely jaundiced when I saw him. His eyes were yellow. He looked awful. But, um... His body was just too beat down. And you know what? I don't know this. But maybe because Peter did believe in God, he did believe in Christ, maybe God just decided to show mercy on him and said, you know what? I'm going to bring you home so you don't have to be in such awful pain anymore. Because all of that behavior, the addictions and even the abuse and do not mistake my words. I'm not giving any excuse for abuse whatsoever, but it all comes from pain. It all comes from deep pain. So maybe God just said, you've had enough, and I'm going to take you to the place where you don't have to feel any of it anymore. I like to believe that he's looking down on us now, not through the filters of mental illness and addiction. But with that love, that love that I, that I saw those first few years, the love he had for those girls. Around six months after Peter died, my husband left. I gave up. I gave up and decided, you know what? If you want to go, just go. I finally got to a place of acceptance that if someone wants to leave, you're better off letting them go. After all, what was I holding on to? And at this point, my biggest priority had to be making a safe and peaceful home for my grieving girls. And this was not a home where they could be at peace and heal the way that they needed to. This whole time, I thought, My children just needed to have a man in their lives. But you know what? A strong and emotionally healthy and available mother is better than just a stand in man for the sake of being there. So, that, my dear sweet listeners who have hung with me this long, um, that brings us full circle. That brings us back to where we started in episode one. This point in my life where I was a single mom of three and I just really saw that I needed to focus on my relationship with God and for once in my life get it through my thick skull that his plan is so much better than any plan I make. Every time I try to take care of myself on my own, Self-medicating. I try to fulfill my dreams the way I see them to be. Marriages that shouldn't have happened. Every time, I end up more hurt. So now, at 43 years old, I think I finally get it, God. I think I get it. I am so grateful if you made it this long. Like, kudos to you. And... Until next time, when we pick back up with our Bible studies, I hope you have a wonderful, amazing day. You can always reach me through direct messages on Instagram at Ms. Ms. Pink Monster. Ms. Pink Monster, also on TikTok. And on YouTube, you can watch these videos, these podcasts, at Ms. Pink Monster underscore. See you next week.